This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Well, we can talk just slightly about COVID, but, you know, it's just an all-encompassing conversation, isn't it? It is, it is. And and we don't have to. This this call and your podcast can be a... Uh, a lovely o- oasis away from all that for now. So I'm okay. sorry I even brought it up. It's hard to, it's hard not to even talk about it. It is so hard. Okay, let's just talk about your book because that's why we're here and it's a lovely book. Recently, I read a book my husband and daughter bought for me. The title is Paris by the Book and the author is a Dutton Prize winner in 2018 as well as a winner of the 2017 George W. Hunt Prize. And his name is Liam Callanan. And the book is Paris by the Book. I would consider myself a voracious reader, always have a book or two on the go, and rarely do I come upon a book that made me cry and really want to know more about the characters, especially the mom in this book, Leah. I love her. Today, I'd like to welcome Liam to the show, author of Paris by the Book, the focus of today's episode. Thank you and welcome, Liam Callanan. Welcome back to Valerie's Variety Podcast with your host, me, Valerie Moss. This show is about eating, reading, and creating how these three things influence us every day and the people that make this happen. Isn't it you or me or our friends? I kind of just want to give you a bit of background why I wanted to interview you and just why I love your book so much and how I kind of came upon your book and that might get us kind of moving in the conversation. Great. So my husband bought me this book for Mother's Day last year and I'd had um, a kind of a pile up of books that I was reading at the time. So I picked it up just, I don't know, a month ago and burned through it very quickly. I just... I love this book so much, and thank you for being on the show. Like, let's just brag a bit. Let's just brag <laughs> a bit about it. So, oh, yeah, you can always get an author to listen to that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I always love to talk about the book cover and how the book feels like if it's a, I have a paperback here, so I don't have a Mm -hmm. hardcover, but I always like to talk about the cover and how the design came to be. Would you mind just describing the cover for the listeners? Yeah. Oh boy. That's a real challenge. It's well, it's a beautiful cover listener. So you need to run out and get one right now. Um, Yes. Right now. It's it's a close up of a red, uh, red front bookstore. Um, which has got kind of a lacquered red look to it and some books through a dark window. And then above it, there's uh, some very, I think, kind of classically French balconies um, and kind of an ochre building. And it's actually, it's a funny story. The, the cover used to be totally different. There were some earlier iterations of the cover that were quite different from this one. 
Mm. And, but what amazed me, uh, it went back and forth and then some early readers at bookstores, uh, really liked the book, but they were like, we need to have a different cover that kind of jumps out a little bit more. And so I think the designer was looking for some color. And what is so stunning to me, and this was going to kind of leach into one of the other questions is that this looks exactly like the bookstore that I was imagining. And not only that, it looks wow. exactly like the bookstore that was kind of behind all this. Getting feedback from readers who love the book but wanted a better cover. Isn't this a humble reaction? And to have the end result be what he imagined? Like how can you get your image from inside your thoughts down on paper? Plus, isn't he a good storyteller even to describe his book cover? You're in for a good show. And I'm not sure if this is a good time to tell the story, but why not? We'll just sure, sure, yeah. Conversational flow. Yeah, yeah, there we exactly. go. So this this book began several years ago now when my family and I were kind of hunting around one spring. We live uh, just north of Chicago, and it gets very cold and wet in the spring here, and we needed to get out of town. And so I called up uh, our airline and asked where we could go on our miles. And I said, you know, can we go to Florida? And they're like, no, you don't have nearly enough miles to go to Florida for spring break. And I asked about right. Arizona and Texas and Cal. No, 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 no. And I said, well, where can we go with our miles? And they said, well, you could go to Paris. Just to give you some perspective, Chicago to Florida, Texas and Arizona is all about a two to three hours by plane, except California, which is about four hours. But Paris? is approximately a nine-hour flight. No wonder he was surprised. And I was dumbfounded, but it turns out Paris in the springtime is actually also a fairly cold, wet place, whatever tourist ads and posters tell you. And so, uh, but that's where we wound up going. And to make it interesting for our girls, who were young at the time, I can't remember exactly how young. I think the youngest was four, we have three girls, it might have been like, or 10 and 12 or, or something like that. But they, that they were definitely kind of young. So to kind of engage them and to make it interesting for them, we gave each of them a book and uh, we let them be the tour guides around Paris. And it actually later then became a travel article that I wrote up called Going to Paris by the Children's Book. And so the oldest child had the Red Balloon, uh, which is actually also a film by Albert Lamaurice. And then the middle one had... Uh, actually, no, the youngest one had the Madeline series from Ludwig Bemelmans, and the middle one had the Adventures of Hugo Cabret. And these oh, books are set. Wow. Yes, oh, wow. Oh, so love great. Yeah. And we kind of. These three books he's rattled off like the back of his hand. There's only one Hugo Cabaret that I know about. Let's go in Liam's order first. The Red Balloon by Albert Lamarose is based on the film The Red Balloon, which came out in 1956. 
This is a story about a boy and his best friend, the Red Balloon, set in the streets of Paris. The second book Liam listed is the Madeline series by Ludwig Bell Melmans, and the quote goes like this. Lived 12 little girls in two straight lines. They broke their bread and brushed their teeth and went to bed. They left the house at half past nine in two straight lines in rain or shine. The smallest one was Madeline. And the third book he listed off is Hugo Cabaret, which was a book turned into a movie recently about a boy who lived in the walls of a busy Paris train station. Like all good things, read the book, then watch the movie. We had like a scavenger hunt across Paris. You know, we were trying to find this and that. And particularly, it was very interesting with um, Madeline, the old, the famous old house in Paris is covered with vines and 12 little girls in two straight lines. Well, various places in Paris claim to be the place, but the truth is that Bemelman's just, um, that was an amalgamation of a bunch of different places that he thought of. And so we had a lot of fun identifying like which building was actually him. And it really, really engaged the kids. So on the last day of the trip, we were walking down this little street in the Marais, uh, the Rue St. Paul. And we have a rule in my family. It's an, it's an author's rule, uh, you might expect, which is anytime we pass a bookstore, we have to, go in. Are, have to go in. And have what's to more, go in. Yes. have to go in. And what's more, Deb will always buy you whatever you want in a bookstore. In a bookstore. This, oh, this, that's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. We and I will say like this this rule doesn't hold for pony stables or um <laughs> Mas- or Maserati dealerships, but <laughs> yeah. It's just there. And uh in the and the woman in the store it was a beautiful old store, but everything was kind of getting packed up to move and we were trying to figure out well what was going on. And she said, uh, she said, well, the, you know, the time had come for her to move on to something new. She'd run the store for quite a while, but her daughter was grown and gone. And then she kind of gave us this wistful look and she said, would you guys like to buy the store? And it was one of those things where I knew she was half joking and she knew she was half joking, but she also, there was a note of seriousness in her voice. And it suddenly was like this thing that we've been just kind of thinking about. Did you just get chills? What would you have done? Bought the store if you were Liam? We hadn't thought about owning a bookstore in Paris. We were just looking to buy a couple books, but suddenly we had this idea that we were going to. I mean, it just kind of consumed me ever since. And then as we left the store, and actually when we got to the hotel that night, I realized to my great dismay that I hadn't gotten my own book. I'd gotten books for the girls, but I hadn't gotten my own souvenir of the store. And then when we came back to the United States and I sat down and started to write, I realized I had gotten a book, and that book is the one that you had, Paris, by the book. Here's the back of the book now that we're into this episode for a few minutes. 
to give you an idea. When eccentric novelist Robert Eady abruptly vanishes, the only clue left behind for his family is four unexpected plane tickets to Paris. Hoping to uncover more clues, and her husband, Leah sets off for France with her daughters. Upon their arrival, she discovers an unfinished manuscript, one Robert had been secretly writing, and that he had sat in Paris. The Edie girls follow the path of the manuscript to a small, floundering English-language bookstore whose wary proprietor is eager to sell. Leah accepts the offer on the spot. As the family settles into their new Parisian life, they trace the literacy paths of beloved Parisian classics, hoping the books will lead them to Robert. But a series of startling discoveries forces Leah to consider that she may not be ready for what solving this mystery might do to her family and the Paris she thought she knew. Charming, haunting, and triumphant, Paris by the Book follows one woman's journey as she writes her own story, exploring the power of family and the magic that hides within the pages of a book. But that's a long way of saying that the eeriest thing to me about that cover, that's exactly yeah. what the store looked like. Uh, okay, well, that, you gave me chills just telling I the never, story. Yeah, it was, and it was called The Red Wheelbarrow, and it no longer exists on the Rue St. Paul, but uh, wonderfully, the book, uh, the bookstore kind of came to life in a new location down by the Rue de Medici, which is over by the Luxembourg Gardens on the left bank. Um, but yeah, so it looks exactly like that. I'm a terrible interviewer, aren't I? I just keep talking and I don't let you get a word in edgewise. You no, go. No, no, you're my, you're my idea. I just want to hear you talk. I love how you write. Okay. And is, so the woman that you met at the bookstore, is she like the woman in the story at all? No, she's nothing like the, wow. the story yes. at all. The, I the, uh, she'd be like her. No, she's, she's much more, she actually, I believe is Canadian, uh, and, uh, or she was Canadian. She moved to Paris many, many years ago. So she's nothing like, uh, Madame Bouillard, the woman in the store, um, mm-hmm. who is her own person. And I have to say, you know, for, even though in the book, in the novel, which we should tell people is about a family that goes to Paris and looks for a missing husband, uh, who's an author. It's it's completely fictional, although I have to say there are certain parts of it that are true to life in the sense that, um, you know, I'm an author and I have a family with daughters, although it's often led to some interesting discussions in the house because there are two daughters in the book, Ellie and Daphne, and I have three daughters. And so my daughters sometimes bicker as to which one has been left out of the book. And then they also, the husband in the book, the father in the book disappears. So every now and then. They don't do as much now, but back when the book first came out, they would joke and say, Daddy's disappearing. And I was like, no, no, I'm not like, I'm not like that. Um, but you know, I had some fun kind of taking some facts in everyday life and kind of blending what was real and what wasn't real and just kind of basically following our explorations around town. So, I mean, in the book, they also follow Madeline, uh, across Paris or the paths and they do a little bit of looking around the red balloon. 
I just want to ask, so the Red Balloon and Madeline, um, they are such a huge part of your story. Are they in this book, in Paris by the Book story, are they significant in your family life? Like, how does that, like, I haven't read a book before that is so mirroring or bringing in another story so much as these two play in there with Leah and the red balloon. Is there Leah being the protagonist, right? Is right. there any, any significance about that in your life? Were they books that your family loved that you passed down to your girls? Is there any mirroring parallels there? Oh, no, I just totally picked them at random off the shelf. No, <laughs> they are. <laughs> They're foundational to me. I mean, this is, uh, I talk about this a little bit in the book. Yeah, Yeah, they are. And I think what's been so interesting to me is a lot of people know Ludwig Bimmelman's Madeline series, particularly if you have girls. I mean, boys and girls read them, but I think um, particularly uh, girls read them. So a lot of people have heard of them at all until your book. Really? And And I'm a voracious reader. Like, I will read anything people suggest to me. And I'll buy random books. I don't just stick with any genre or any author, although I have some of my favorites. But no, I haven't. Since I've read your book, I've watched the short film. I've done all the reading on Red Balloon. I've looked up uh, La Morsée and Madeline, and I've done a bit of research on it. But no, I never heard of it in school or anything. Well, you know, I think it might be a uniquely American phenomenon because, or not unique to America, but a largely American phenomenon. Bellman's okay. is the author of, it's an illustrated children's book series called Madeline. Uh, and it's famous, like any, any American. I was just rattling off the beginning of it a little while ago. And just about any American could finish the sentence in an old house in Paris that was covered with vines with 12 little girls in two straight lines. And it's about the adventures of a little girl in Paris who lives in a boarding school and goes and has kind of madcap adventures around Paris. I will say that in Paris, no one's ever heard of Ludwig Bimmelman's. Um, they know that American tourists seem to like it, but he's not very much read over there. As for the red balloon, that's another, that's more, I would say fewer people know about that, but very interestingly. So red balloon was first a film in around 1955. It's a short film. It's about 30, 33 minutes long. In fact, it's so short, it was the shortest film ever to win an Oscar for Best Screenplay, which is kind of funny because there's almost no words in the film. It's about a little boy who goes across Paris with a balloon. It's it's really almost more of a fairy tale, a fable. It's live action. And it's his best friend. It's his best friend. And it's uh, it's harrowing, really. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's it's a fairly poignant poignant almost to excess film and so it's kind of bright and wonderful but it's also in a very french way kind of very dark and, and it's uh, so timeless like everybody so timeless. everybody experiences that moment in their life yeah they do and i think uh you know what's so fascinating to me is that so, and another reason why that's kind of an american phenomenon is because the french government kind of flooded American classrooms with free copies of this film in the like mm. 70s and 80s. And so anytime a teacher needed to occupy her kids for a rainy day recess, 
you watch this film. So for kids who grew up in a certain era in the United States, maybe 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. they've seen this film. But kids today have not seen this film. And, you know, earlier people have maybe haven't seen the film either. But um, it's for those of us. So another author has made the uh, argument, Adam Gopnik, actually, I think. Another Canadian. I can't stop mentioning Canadians on this call. I love that. Huh? Keep him coming. The, uh, he makes the argument that for many Americans, this was um, Lubert Bemelman's, uh, this Madeline books, or I would argue per, uh, the Red Balloon. This was how Americans kind of early formed their idea of what Paris was, and it's how they went to Paris. And so any American that goes to Paris, I have this kind of thesis as is kind of confronting that first. Like I remember when when we went there, my littlest was standing, I can't remember, it was like, again, I think somewhere in the Marais, and she was, oh my gosh, she was only, she was little at the time. We even brought a stroller, we never used it. Uh, so she must have been three or four. And at one point, she stood in the middle of the sidewalk, she put her hands on her hips, and she said, Daddy, I think I've been here before. And I mm-hmm. said, you know, I mean, unless we didn't keep a good eye on her daycare and they'd snuck her off over the Atlantic. Right. Uh, She'd never been there, but she had been there through these books. And so I think, and and kind of a very much a myth of Paris, which I think, and that's not just unique to these books, but I think that's almost unique worldwide and true of maybe very few other cities that people have an image of Paris, even if they never go, they know what it's like. And like, for example, when I'm, whenever I'm there, I notice that people will find themselves, particularly couples, they're on a bridge over the Seine. Maybe they're near the Eiffel Tower, maybe not. But they kind of stop in the middle of the bridge and they look at each other. I've seen this happen. They look at each other and you can almost see the thought cross their minds like, we're in Paris, we should be kissing because we're on a should, bridge yes, over the Seine. Should we be getting married? Or... And it's just because they have this and then they kiss. And so and it's because they have this kind of, you know, image of Paris built up in their minds. And I think that's a lot of what people kind of contend with. And so in my book, there's two people, Robert and his wife, Leah, and their kids who all have this image of Paris as a place of freedom or escape or duty or obligation or magic or romance or loneliness. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And they all see it in different ways. And so it's interesting. The German edition of this book uh, has a completely different title because Paris by the book did not did not translate well into German as a title. And the entire, in German, the book is called I Dream a Paris for You or I Invent a Paris for You. And mm. I think it's, it doesn't really sound good in English, but I love the idea behind it because all the characters in this book, to their own extent, are kind of inventing a Paris on the fly. It's like they're, they're making this world all around them. And that, you know, that's something that I've experienced while I was there. So, yeah, and I and like just to kind of clarify too, with the girls that you have in the book, they're you know younger teenagers, and they have their own way of taking Paris in to their characters, mm-hmm. and not just the characters of their actual in the book character, but their personalities. The two yeah. sisters just kind of take it on differently, and one becomes more fluent in French, and the other one kind of knows how to do the market shopping better and things like that, right? And they, they have their own do. little way to maneuver through Paris and help their mom, Leah, who kind of acts like she's struggling, but in the end, she's 
very fluent in the parents culture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to, someone described it to me as it's a book about a, uh, women being brave. Uh, and I like it that. It is so about that. And that was one of my questions I had for you. Like you portray Leah's vision or her, yeah, like her vision of who she is as basically a single mom in Paris because Robert, he's not there. And how you do that is so great. Like, did you have female influence around you? Did you grow up with sisters? Like, how did you portray that so well, in my opinion, I guess? Oh, thank you. Not just in I your opinion. Leah. Let's just make it long. Oh, thank you. I love Leah, too. I think, yeah. um, you know, I, I usually say I'm not an expert on women. I wouldn't pretend to be, but I, I'm an expert on Leah. Like, I, I know her. And you I, I know spoke, her? Oh. And I feel Leah, like, yeah. and I'm not, and she's, she's completely fictional. I mean, this, uh, I did grow up. I have a wonderful sister and mom. I have very kind of, uh, and I live, of course, in a house full of women. I have a wonderful wife. I have three, uh, amazing girls. One of the cats, we have two cats. One of the cats is a girl too. So my agent is a woman. My editor is a woman. Everyone who worked on publicity for this book was a woman. So, it was definitely, I had a lot of people helping me make, get things right. Um, but I think, you know, one of the ways that this book came to be, and I think kind of, and I think part of this without getting too woo woo about it, you just have to mm -hmm. kind of honor the magic of storytelling or writing. When I first started this book, it was in the third person and, uh, I kind of got mm. stopped. Like I would say like, and I was trying, she did this and he did that and she did this. And I got stopped and I around, oh, I don't know, maybe three, two or three chapters in. And so I did something that I tell my students to do. I teach at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, go Panthers. And I teach, I tell my students if they ever get stopped on a project to switch the point of view, in other words, or more plainly, to hand the microphone around to your characters and see who has something to say. So I did that one day. It was kind of as an exercise. And I gave the wife, uh, uh, character Leah, I gave her the microphone and she started talking and talking and talking and she just didn't stop. And I, and I went with it for a day or two and then I realized this is her book. She has something to say. And I didn't know exactly where the book was going. I just knew that she had some things to get off her chest. And so I just let her run with it. And, uh, and that's how the book came to be. And so she really is the heart and soul of this book. And so I'm so glad that you've identified with her. So, but it's like, I don't know exactly how the stars aligned, um, and but I'm glad they did. Well, so this kind of will be a nice segue into a little excerpt that either you can read, which I would prefer, or I can read, but kind of set the stage to, so she's in Paris. I'm talking about page 208. Oh, right. So right. she's in this. Paris. And while you're looking for it, I'll just kind of give a bit of background. And there's been an incident with her daughter. And her mm -hmm. daughter arrives at the hospital with the care of her older sister. And Leah has been out with her friend. Mm -hmm. And so she's really hard on herself, like, about being a single mom and not knowing where her husband is. And just really trying to be there for the girls. However, they're teenagers, so they're kind of pushing her a bit away. Um, you know, she's not as involved as when they were preteens, 
And mm-hmm. so she arrives at this hospital and her language isn't great. In the meantime, in her life, she's kind of acquired these two kids mm-hmm. that come from quite a wealthy father and they mm-hmm. nanny, they nanny for him. Right. And so it's kind of like a little background story with these two little munchkins, but this father, his name's George. Mm-hmm. He finds out that she's in the hospital. And I think it's through Madeline, but I can't quite remember off the top of my head. So he phones and phones Leah, and then Leah decides to answer the phone. So I'm basically on page 206, but it's kind of I, interesting just... because she's, it says in here, oh, he'd forgotten to tell me something. I was a terrible mom. And yeah, and maybe I'll 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 just do some additional setting up. You did a great job, but um, okay. And then in this in this section deep in the book, we won't spoil exactly why they're in the hospital. But um, Leah and her friend George, who is also an expat English speaking uh, parent in Paris, uh, he has little twins, and Leah and her daughters take care of the twins. Anyway, George has come to offer some moral support. Uh, as Leah goes through this very trying time, one of her daughters is mm-hmm. off in the exam room. And Leah's feeling like she's really failed at parenting and failing at Paris and failing at everything in that fact. So George shows up with a very special coffee cup. And when Leah starts complaining about what a terrible person he is, she is, uh, George goes off on this wonderful kind of little rant. He is, uh, he's English in the book. I'm not going to pretend to do an English accent. I think I'd be laughed off the air. But just when you hear it, think of someone very erudite. He's got a little bit of a suave to him. Like he, he does. He's, upper he's echelon. Very, he's very, yes. He's, so you have to picture him in a beautiful uh, Savile Row suit and um, very yeah. particular. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. All right. So he tells Leah, after who's, Leah's been complaining about what a terrible parent that she's been, and he says to her, you and I, you and I are not bad parents, not by a long shot. Your youngest child is recovering from an illness that was none of your doing. Your oldest child was able to get the sister the care she needed in the dead of night in a bureaucracy-mad country not of her birth. You have carved out a life in Paris for yourself and your children, and you have made space for mine. Discount none of this. Leah, you have practically made the short list for the World Parenting Awards. He took a slug from the cup that he had given me. It's not a crowded field, he said. God knows, but still. But, but George, I didn't know what I was going to say. I just thought that saying something, however, would forestall tears. It did not. George handed me his pocket square, which I took and even used, despite the fabric feeling like it cost more than the sum total of everything I owned. I said, moving here, I knew Paris would be hard, but not, not this hard. I mean... Not just this, but I trailed off. He waited before he spoke. Did you know, he then said, did you know that I lived in the States for a while? Yeah, I went to business school there, California. Shocking, yes. It shocked me, too, that I loved it. <laughs> Life, school was so easy. I lived two blocks from a drugstore. What was it called? CVS. That sold whiskey and drugs and condoms and basic groceries, not to mention a full line of batteries socks it stayed open 24 hours a day seven days a week very handy but in paris 
I live like you, less than a kilometer from the banks of the Seine. Charlemagne used to stroll here, at least until he moved the capital of the Holy Roman Empire out of France. But that was his mistake, not mine, not yours. He looked up. Maybe it's harder here in Paris some days, but it is better every day. I let him Oh, yeah. I love that. I didn't want to cut you off, but it just is so encapturing of Leah's feeling and, and he's just, he was like a, he's like a normal guy, but he's kind of a mysterious guy in the book. He is. But then in the hospital, he's like, I lived in the United States. I know what it's like there. Mm -hmm. Might be hard here some days, but it's better every day. Oh, yeah. And I think that's that's part of what I was trying to get through. Like, I wanted to communicate both the, the messiness of Paris life and the kind of reality of it. I did a reading, actually, in Paris. Um, oh, wow. It's really, And I did it at the American Library, so it's mostly Americans. And mm-hmm. uh, I was pleased, and most of them said that I got the expat life uh, correct. But there was a couple of French people there. And they were very shocked because I think on one or two pages I mentioned that, you know, every now and then you might go down a sidewalk that smells like urine uh, or turn a corner into an alley. And they were like, this, that doesn't, the, no, Paris is perfect. It doesn't ever smell like that. And <laughs> I thought, oh, no, it does, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a big urban city. And I think one of the things I wanted to do in this book was kind of show how those two Parises coexist, that mythic Paris of the Red Balloon or Madeline or for that matter Paris by the book with that very real gritty Paris where you go and the streets may have an odd smell to them or you find yourself not at the Eiffel Tower but at the Children's Hospital um, Mm -hmm. which I visited uh, as part of the research for this book and Mm -hmm. you find yourself living a real life in a crazy place and I think that's one of the challenges uh, of the book that the book explores which is sometimes we find our place ourselves in places in our life, both geographically or maybe emotionally, where we expect one thing, we expect some sort of perfect image of what we're going to be, whether that's of a spouse or a marriage or um, a lot in life. And then it turns out to be something else. And then when you find that discrepancy, how do you bridge it? How do you deal with it? How do you create a new myth or a new story that gets you through do your girls like to write stories as well? You know, I've got all or different. Is it like I like the shoemaker shoes. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I usually say I wouldn't wish, uh, you know, I hope I, I wouldn't wish writing on any of them because it's, it's a difficult life. Uh, it takes a lot of work and it doesn't always, you know, work out in the end, either creatively or, or certainly monetarily. Um, but I do have some writers. They're all, I will say, if they're not all writers, they're all great storytellers. Mm. Um, and so awesome. we kind of have a competitive, not competitive, but yeah, a little bit competitive uh, storytelling at dinner every night. Um, but otherwise, I got a computer scientist. I have a budding political scientist. And um, I also have quite the baker. So uh, the youngest is, uh, she makes everything from donuts to bagels to, I think she's even trying some croissants so, sometime soon. So, uh, oh, that's uh, but, interesting. I just was looking up a croissant recipe today to see if I could 
try it with my being stuck at home persona right now. It takes, you I just mean, have to commit to a lot of butter. You got to commit to a lot of butter. Like lots and lots and lots of layers. Flat and oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how his girls will turn out. We can see promise in our kids from one interest to another, computers to political science to a baker. As diverse as Liam's commitment to his storytelling, don't you love how we mentioned the competitive storytelling at the dinner table? Every parent can relate to that. So how many times have you been to Paris? A few now or... No, I, I've been there. I've been there a bunch. I couldn't. Uh, I've never lived there, um, mm. and I, I had. But you know, it's funny. I had different ways of living there without living there. Which is like one way that I did. This person put on. Uh, I think it was YouTube. This person wandered around Paris with a microphone and just recorded ambient sound crossing Paris. And I loved oh, that. I person. love that. And so what I would do when I when I be, you know, I would usually write in the mornings and when I would have a writing morning, I would go ahead and tune into that YouTube track and I would put mm. on my noise canceling headphones and suddenly I wasn't sitting, you know, north of Chicago anymore. I was sitting in Paris because I could hear, you know, sirens wailing in the distance. I could hear French speaking being spoken around me, but also a dozen other languages because that's what Paris is like and I can hear motor scooters swinging by. So it was a really interesting way to kind of live in Paris without living. And I certainly, when I went, I, uh, you know, I wandered the streets. In fact, I made it the last time I went to Paris, uh, second to one, I can't remember. Um, one of my trips to Paris, I made a commitment that I would never uh take any motorized transportation so i biked and i walked i walked across the entire city because i just wanted to be kind of in the sidewalk in the street i want to be soaking up every last grain of it and, uh, and well, that, in your book you kind of sorry to interrupt you but in your book you kind of talk about how it's just so walkable it like, is. people do take the train everywhere but it's just so everything is just so close and accessible the markets the this the that it's just so walkable it really is. like that yeah I think, uh, I think Leah goes on a rant about this, which I can freely admit is stolen for me, which is Leah says she never takes the metro, uh, mm-hmm. which I am also totally against. It's a fine metro system. It's great. You can get anywhere with it. But mm-hmm. if you're in Paris, you should not be underground. Uh, that this is my, you need to get on the bus, uh, if you really need to go, or better yet, walk and, uh, and see the glorious city for all it is. I mean, again, I have nothing against subways. I love them. But in Paris, I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you're spending your whole time going from point A to point B uh, underground. So just kind of about Leah, just to kind of finish off, is she, I could kind of kind of picture her maybe around like her late 30s, early 40s. She sort Mm -hmm. of sounds like a younger mom, but is she more mature in her in her heart is she younger on the outside like how would you describe Leah's look do you have a vision of her I do and you know we can play this game 
together, which is like, who would you cast? Um, mm-hmm. I, I had, I've gone through a couple different people in my mind. I mean, to me, like in the book, she, I think she says she's 42. Um, and I would argue that she's a young mom in the beginning and kind of an older, wiser mom, uh, at the end. But, um, I feel like I, I saw her as kind of a Julianne Moore type at certain times. Uh, other people have recommended other people to me. Uh, she could really, um, I'm not sure. I mean, who did you see in your head? I never casted her. I just um, just pictured her kind of like girl next door, kind of wholesome. She kind of had a little bit of a tough upbringing, which we won't go into. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, when she became more mature, and her husband would go on these right aways. I think it really just humbled her and made her more solid in her personality. And then obviously towards the end, I really feel like she just owned all of that and really was gracious in the end. I don't know. I like, I like that a lot. I like that reading Mm -hmm. a lot in some ways. You know, it's a coming of age story, except instead of like the usual coming of age story where a teenager becomes an adult, this is kind mm. of an adult becoming an adult. She, she had like kind of a quiet and circumscribed life, uh, yes. in the States. And then she has to go to Paris and not only make a life for herself, but a life for her family in a place where she doesn't quite speak the language. Um, she learns it eventually, but she doesn't speak it there initially. She's got two girls to manage who were dealing with their own things and uh, trying to kind of just make their way in a new part of the world while contending with this, you know, kind of imaginary world that she thought she was in and the one that she's entered by way of Paris. Yeah. And she kind of owns it in the end and just is so empowered by it. Yeah. Empowered. Yeah. I like her. I like her softness so much. Oh, good. What did you think of part one? Part two will be released tomorrow where we discuss his French influence, the red balloon in a bit more detail, as well as his favorite books. Plus, I mentioned to Liam that I would give away my copy of my book. And Liam has graciously sent me a signed hardcover to replace the one I'm giving away, plus another softcover to add to the giveaways. And I scrapbooked bookmarks in a Paris theme to add to the pot. Two lucky people can win these books by leaving a comment, sharing their favorite book with me and why it's lingered for them. Tell me your story about the book. Thanks for listening today. Please stay subscribed. Please keep in touch and share my show with your friends, family, and colleagues. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest. It's growing and building, and I love sharing and learning from you guys. Email or text me at my email address, Valerie at ValerieMoss.ca, and share your ideas and your comments about my show. My new show music is called Girl, and I love it. It's by Text Me Records, Leviathan. Intro and outro is recorded by London Moss. Cover art and production is by me, Valerie Moss. Thanks for listening.
Visit ValerieMoss.ca for more information.